about a year ago, I had this vivid dream. In the dream, I was leading like a tour group of people from this country to a foreign country where I was responsible for the group to get them to this event and this conference hall. And so we land in this airport. It's like Germany or Poland, somewhere like that in the dream. And I get off into, into the airport and I realize, I don't speak the language. I can't read these signs. And I have no idea how you get from the airport to this conference center we're supposed to go to. Like, I don't know, do you take a bus or whatever? And I'm like, why didn't I like print all this stuff out and figure it out ahead of time and bring it with me? But I'm like, oh no, I got my phone. I'm going to be fine. And I pull the phone out of my pocket and I open up Google Maps and it won't open because I don't have the right SIM card for that country. And it's this like terrifying moment where I'm like, I knew I had to get ready. I had plenty of time to get ready. Why did I not get ready? Well, thankfully, it was just a dream. But there are situations in life, are there not, where you and I need to get ready, and when we don't, or if we don't, there are significant and serious consequences for us. A friend of mine spent all summer studying for his comprehensive exams, which came at the end of a two-year graduate program. And a couple times this summer, I reached out to him. I said, hey, you want to go do something? He's like, no, man, I've got to be inside studying. And I wanted to say, hey, you know, live a little. But he, he just buckled down. Well, he just told me it's a good thing he did because half of the people in the class who took that exam failed it. And he said, I would have failed it too had I not like, spent all summer getting ready. Or, you know, take a marathon or something like that. My daughter ran one a couple years ago. And before that race, months before the race, she printed out these month-by-month calendars that showed how many miles she had to run every day if she was going to pull off this marathon. Six miles, four miles, eight miles, 12 miles. And, and you know, you can skip that if you want. You don't have to do it. But I'll tell you what happened. What will happen is about halfway through the race, you're going to hate your life. Right? Or take retirement. I got an email last week. said, Dear Kevin Miller, you're age 55. I thought, where'd you get my demographic data? But they did. And they said, by this age, you should already have set aside seven times your annual income. Well, that was a jolt. <laughs> and it doesn't exactly help to go, well, what do you mean by seven? It depends on how you interpret seven. You know? <laughs> you're either ready or you're not. But as significant and as serious as each one of those situations are, they pale in comparison to an event for which every single person here must be ready. And that is this, the visible and glorious return of Jesus Christ. We say it every Sunday, he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. This is one of the clearest, most central teachings of the Christian faith. Can I just remind you what that means? Jesus taught himself. He said, for the Son of Man, which was a name he used of himself, will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. Or, or Paul said this. He said, this is the message I proclaim, that the day is coming when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge everyone's secret life. You have a secret life. So do I. What's in it? Are you ready for the day when that will be opened up before a holy God? 
Malachi, the prophet, said, Who can endure the day of his coming? It'll be like a fire that, that like refines and melts down metal. And so I have a sacred obligation as a Christian that I am ready for the return of Jesus Christ. And I've got a, an additional obligation as a preacher and a pastor that every one of you would know how to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ, that there would be no ambiguity, that I would do the utmost in my power to make it clear to you so that you can't leave today until you know what do I need to do for the return of Jesus Christ so that I am ready. And there are two sort of approaches people take. Let's look at that. If you would turn to Luke 3. Luke begins his story by listing out seven people, Pontius Tiberius, the Roman emperor, Pontius Pilate, the governor, all the way down to Caiaphas, the high priest. And then he mentions a nobody that nobody knows, John. And, and Luke is doing this contrast thing where he's saying, here's seven people who have money, John's broke. Here's seven people who have enormous unchecked power, John has nothing. Here's seven people who live in important cultural centers like Rome and Jerusalem. John lives out in the desert. And yet the story doesn't begin until John gets the message from God and does something with it. And Luke's telling us something important, that history turns on the person who hears the word of God and obeys it. Verse 3, Then John went from place to place on both sides of the Jordan River, preaching that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. Isaiah had spoken of John when he said, he's a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming, clear the road for him. Now there hasn't been a prophet for 400 years until the day that John walks up out of the desert near the Dead Sea wearing a rough black coat and brings this message that he's heard from the Lord, and it can be summarized in one word. Repent. Now, I, I, could, I could stop right there, and you would all know the central theme of this message, which is that to get ready for the coming of Jesus Christ, you need to repent. That the way you and I get ready for the second coming of Jesus Christ is the same way John got the people ready for the first coming of Jesus Christ, which is that he told them, repent. We could end right there. But we can't stop right there because there is so much confusion in the church today about what it means to repent. And so I want to clear up some common misunderstandings. So that as in the rest of this sermon, as I'm calling you to repent and I'm calling myself to repent, we're all on the same page about what this means. The first misunderstanding is that repent means change your mind. If you've been in church for a little while, you may have heard this. The word repent comes from the Greek metanoia, which means meta plus noying, meaning to change one's mind. Right? And you've heard that and you've said, oh, so it means I got a new insight. I had an aha moment, and maybe I looked at it a little differently than I used to. No, that may be part of it, but repent in this sense that John's bringing it means you don't just change your mind, you change your life. Look at verse 8. Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. If repentance doesn't touch your life, you haven't repented. 
if I can use Facebook language for a moment, is not enough to just click like. You've got to go to the march. You've got to send a check. You've got to write your senator. You haven't repented until you've actually taken action. And something's different about your life. That's the first misunderstanding. The second misunderstanding I find a lot of believers have about repentance is they think this. Repentance is for the non-believer. Yeah, when I was not in Christ, I didn't know Christ. I wasn't following him. I didn't care about that. I was kind of hostile. I, just, I needed to repent. I needed to turn around, change my life, and come into Jesus Christ. But thankfully, now that I'm in Christ, I don't have to do that anymore. Well, actually, some of you know this part of the Bible, uh, the last book, where the risen Lord Jesus sends seven messages to seven different churches. Now, these are groups of Christians during the time of the apostles. And four out of those seven, he says, repent. Let me give you one example so you get what I mean. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. So repentance is not just for the non-believer, it's for the believer. Well, third, a third misunderstanding is that repentance is this big visible event. There's somebody coming forward in a church service and they're kneeling down and they're weeping and it's kind of this big thing. Well, if I were a film director, yes, I would go with that. And that might be part of repentance for you. But more often in the Christian life, repentance is this tiny, invisible act in which the Holy Spirit convicts you of something. You see it and you go, oh, I confess that. You turn away from it and you start to change your life accordingly. It happened to me last week. I was sitting right in this section during worship and I had these two inner attitudes that nobody knew I had and nobody was going to know I had. And it's sometime during worship, the Holy Spirit just put his finger on them and he said, yeah, those are pride. And they looked ugly when I saw it like that. And I, I agreed with the Lord and I confessed it in my heart in prayer. And this week, as there's been a temptation to go back to those attitudes, I've tried not to. That's what it means to repent. You see, in repentance, it, there, there's like work to be done. There's like excavation and road work. This is why this text from Isaiah is set here for us. Look at verse 5. Clear the road for him. The valleys will be filled. That takes a lot of stone. A lot of dump trucks. Beep, beep, beep. And the mountains and hills made level. That takes a lot of bulldozing. The curves will be straightened and the rough places made smooth. There's these big yellow caterpillar things rolling across the landscape and clearing stuff out. And so when you and I repent, there's going to be some, some excavation work that has to be done. Some years ago, Karen and I uh, had a 20-something woman, uh, also named Karen, a friend of ours, and she came to live with us in our house for a number of months. And one night, she asked me for help. She needed help on something. I think it was something with her car. And she said, Kevin, hey, could you help me out with this? I really need your help. And I said to her, oh, you know, Karen, I would really love to help you, um, but here's the thing. I'm just slammed right now with work. I mean, for the next six weeks, it's just wall to wall. But, you know... Uh, come back to me, you know, at, at six weeks, and I'd be glad to help you with whatever you need. And she looked at me, and with a soft voice and with no taint of malice in it, she said, you know, I've heard you say that a lot. And it seems like at the end of six weeks, you're just as busy as you were before. Like, when is the time you're not going to be busy? 
my mouth opened up and nothing came out. I was absolutely floored by that. She had called me out on a blind spot I had never seen in my life, which was chronic over-busyness. It took me weeks to actually even accept that that was true of me and, and, and to stop denying it. And then it took me several more weeks to realize that this is not a virtue. This is actually a vice and it's hurting the people around me and the people I love. And then it took me weeks of deep excavation and road work to figure out, well, why am I so busy? Well, I like to get things done. I love to achieve. Well, why do I love to achieve so much? Oh, because I'm afraid if I don't, I'm a nobody and nobody will love me. Okay, now we're getting down to somewhere. See, and that's taken time over my life to repent of that way of going about my life. That's not the way God called me to live my life. And I'm trying to get my life back into the way He would live my life. And as I have tried to repent in that area, let me tell you what happens. You smooth out the road for the Lord Jesus to come. So more and more often now, as people come to me for help, I, I don't have to go, hey, come back in six weeks. I'm slammed right now, but I won't be then. I can say, I'd love to help you. How can I help you? And do you see what that does? It turns the whole focus of life, which was about me and my achievement and my projects and my busyness, all so important, and now it's turning it out toward other people and saying, how can I love and serve you? Is there a way I could help you? But that's deep repenting work, and it's hard work, and so here's the human reality. We all want to find a reason why we don't have to do that work, why this call from John the Baptist doesn't apply to us. Look at verse 7. John, the crowds come out to him for baptism. You go, oh, that'd be good. He should be feeling good that so many people are responding. He says, you brood of snakes. Wow. Now, who's he calling snakes here? Are these like drug pushers and mafia people? These are devout religious people. And that's the problem. Look at verse 8. Prove by the way you live that you've repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe, we're descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. Now here's what's going on for these folks. They're saying, look, I have a direct genetic and cultural linkage to Abraham. Abraham, the father of faith. Abraham, the one to whom God swore an unbreakable oath and made the covenant with him. And God would never go back on his oath. He will not break that covenant. And I'm in that covenant because of my connection to Abraham. So God will never reject me. And John's saying, you need to change too. Because God's not interested in your religion. He's interested in your real change. It is totally possible that you and I are very religious and very unready. And John's saying, that's not going to work. Now, it just so happens that we live in a town that's at least perceived by many to be highly religious. So I had to ask myself, as I prepared this sermon, what is it that we would use, what kind of religious trope would we use as kind of a shield so we don't have to do this hard work of life change to prepare for the return of Jesus Christ? And here's what I came up with, and let me just offer my opinion to you and see if it resonates. We don't say, I'm a descendant of Abraham, of course. Our line is, I'm under grace. Grace, grace, grace. How often do we actually think about the return of Jesus Christ in blinding power and overwhelming glory and the opening up of the books? How often do we talk about that? We don't. We're like, grace, 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 mercy, grace. Now, let me make very clear. I believe in grace. 
I preach grace. Go online and listen to my sermons from Galatians, and I say as boldly as I know how, we are saved by grace through faith, and this not of ourselves, lest anyone should boast. But there's real grace, and there's fake grace. Real grace is the grace that comes to us from God. And the Bible teaches that it's his kindness that moves us to repentance. So one of the things real grace does is it moves us to repentance. You go, oh God, you were with me even when I was treating you like that? And our heart softens and we want to return to him. That's real grace. Fake grace is the grace we give ourselves as an excuse for why we don't have to repent. You know, you know what, I, I've been a Christian my whole life. Man, I threw a pine cone on the fire when I was 12 years old at summer camp. I really don't have to worry about this pattern in my life because I'm in, I'm saved. And Jesus is, you know, see what we do? Real grace is the partner of repentance. It's grace that God gives us the Holy Spirit's conviction to lead us to repentance. A.W. Tozier, the great prophet who preached here in Chicago in the 1960s, used to say this, God inclines us to repent but he cannot do our repenting for us. So Jesus Christ is returning. He's coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and there's only one way to be ready for that, and it's not to take the religiosity way. It's to repent. So the application for each one of us this morning, friends, is this question. In what area has the Holy Spirit been convicting you that you need to change? Now, you don't need to, to go long and hard and, and try to scrutinize to find this because God has already been trying to bring it to your attention. Maybe even friends have, have said some comments to you and you're kind of like, oh, they're so annoying. I don't know why they're so critical of me. That can't be right. And has the message that's been coming to you through the Holy Spirit and through your friends been, hey, there's a problem in your life. And you're like, oh, yeah, no, it's no big deal. And they're saying, no, this is, this is a pattern and you go, no, it's just a couple slip-ups. You're making such a big deal out of this. And they're like, I'm worried that it's becoming a part of you. And you're like, I can stop anytime I want. What is that for you? The Holy Spirit is going to reveal this to you because repentance is not a do-it-yourself project. It's not like one of those self-exams that the doctor tells you to do where you take two fingers and you move inch by inch looking for the lump. It's more like going and getting an MRI. You let the professionals search you. Right? That's why the scripture says, Search me, O God, and know my heart, and try me, and know if my anxious thoughts, and see if there's any wicked way in me. Uh, but, but you do have to go for the MRI, and then you have to follow up with whatever the results are that, that the Holy Spirit shows to you. Is it that you were hurt, and you haven't let it go? You know you should let it go. But you don't forgive, and you haven't forgiven, and what's happened is there's sort of a sickly sweetness to this sense that you were righteous, you were the offended one, you were the victim, and, and, and you have to let it go. Maybe there's some habit that's been building in your life, and you have not gone and to anyone for help with it because it's just too embarrassing. The biggest sign that you have repented would be when you, when you take the secret out into the light before a trusted pastor or confidant or mentor or friend and you say, humble yourself and you say, I need help. I'm trying to change this area of my life. I want to repent. Would you hold me accountable? Would you provide the extra help and support and counsel I need so that I can have a different way with this pattern that's been building in my life? Now, I know, friends, that some of you have a very tender heart. You live this way. 
But I have to say, it was sadly sobering when I was studying this to realize that most people were not ready for Jesus' first coming. He came into the world that he had created and his own people didn't recognize him. They rejected him. Jesus felt the sting of rejection every day of his life and he warned us that when he comes again, most people, again, are just not going to be ready. He says, it'll, when the Son of Man returns, it'll be like it was in Noah's day. Before the flood, people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings. Right up to the time Noah entered his boat, people didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. And that will be the way it'll be when the Son of Man returns. So I must ask you, what is that area in your life that you need to repent of to be ready for that moment? There used to be an area in your life where you were burning hot for the Lord. You were so ready to do whatever He said. And over time, that became kind of warmish and lukewarm and cool, and now actually it's cold. There was a point where your heart was so soft and open to whatever the Holy Spirit told you, and now it's gotten a little firmer and tightened up and toughened up, and now it's hard, and God has to kind of break you to, to, to open you back up to Himself. Where you, you used to be so focused on the Lord, your eyes and His eyes were right there, and then kind of one eye drifted away, and now you're looking in other directions in your life and not into Him. Would you return? Would you repent? For, for many years, we've had conversations in the Miller house about my driving. Um, my wife's talked to me about my driving. My daughter's talked to me about my driving. My sister-in-law's talked to me about my driving. And it goes like this. The way you drive, you're going to have an accident. I'm like, I've never had one. They're like, but you drive so aggressive. No, it's assertive. And so we had these conversations. Well, as some of you know, we've for many years owned a van that we affectionately dubbed Jesus' van. Well, recently, Jesus' van went to be with Jesus. And so we got this new car, and it's got this newfangled feature called EyeSight, where these two cameras are mounted up on your windshield, and it's tied into a computer, and it monitors how you're driving. So the first time I changed lanes without signaling, it went beep, 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 and this yellow warning light came on, lane departure indicator. And then I drove up, and I was coming in a little fast on the person who was in front of me, and a red light went on, warning light, wah, 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 collision warning, and it started to break for me because it didn't think I was going to break. My wife loves this feature. <laughs> I hate this feature. John the Baptist is like the family members who's trying to say there's this pattern in your life and you're not paying attention and it's got to be worked on. It's got to come under change. And you can ignore me, but there will come a day when the Lord returns in power and great glory and the books are open and He will tell you the truth about your life with absolutely clear eyesight. Would you obey the word of the prophet through John the Baptist? Repent. Prepare the way for the Lord. Re obey the word of the Apostle Peter who preached, Repent. Save yourselves from this wicked generation. Would you obey the words of our Lord Jesus Christ who said, Repent. The kingdom of God is near. Amen.